Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the, another sunny day at the Hay Festival, I'm very pleased to say. This event is given in association with Cambridge University. Uh, the Cambridge Centre for Gallium Nitrate has pioneered research into the development of gallium nitrate light-emitting diodes, or LEDs. Currently, there are 1.1 billion people who do not, have, do not have access to electricity, and then a further 2 billion only intermittently. Not only can LEDs become part of the solution to help some of the world's poorest people, they can also help us sleep better, fight cancer, and prevent identity theft. Here to explain how is Dr. Suma Lata Sahonta. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Can you all hear me? Okay, this is a really well-attended talk. Thank you for coming to see me. That's wonderful. Um, so... Uh, from the title, you can guess that I'm talking about how light can improve our lives. And in particular, I want to talk about um, how artificial light can be tailored so that we all have nicer working lives, healthier time, and also probably to improve our entertainment as well. So what you can see on this image is uh, lots of LEDs. We've got these... Uh, find a pointer. Can you see the red light at all? Okay. So we've got various LEDs here which are disguising themselves as... Um, traditional lights like incandescent tungsten bulbs. You've got a fluorescent tube here, which is actually an LED. And you've got these LED strips here, which you can cut whichever bits off you want and stick them to whatever surface you want. And over here, we've got a mini projector or a pocket projector. So these are very tiny arrays of LEDs, and you can use them to project, uh, project images. So we'll look at that a little bit in this talk. OK. So. Uh, I think most of you have probably seen an LED before. They come in a range of shapes and sizes, so we've got a few of them here. Um, those of you who are a, a little bit younger, you probably are really used to seeing LEDs on your indicator lights for your computer or as your bike lights or even as overhead lighting. Um, I just want to take you back to the days before LED technology existed, and this is the sort of entertainment we had. So this is uh, a Nintendo Game Boy, and this is... Super Mario Land from 1989. And what you can see is um, we've got a monochrome LCD screen here. And you can see there's a greenish tinge from the liquid crystals inside this display. But the essential thing about this is that it's not backlit. And so you couldn't really get any of the amazing colors and beautiful graphics that you see now. Um, I showed... This, I showed this Game Boy and demonstrated a game to some 10-year-olds. Um, they, they had a mixture of sort of disgust and fury and pity, and they were really upset that we had to have this kind of entertainment when we were kids. So this is a 1989 technology. Uh, moving on to kind of more current technology, um, we've got here a, an amazing um, display. So you can buy these now. These are graphical displays for your bicycle. And what we've got is um, 256 LEDs mounted onto the spokes of your bikes, and you've now got um, a 256-pixel full-color display, which you can cycle around and wow people with, which is quite fun. Um, what we've also got here is a hologram. And at any single point in time, the microprocessors send the corresponding signal very quickly to each of the LEDs, creating a coherent image. So what we've got is um, a micropixel LED projector going on here, and they're recording this chap's um, 
talking and uh, voice and, and video in real time, and they're projecting it in three dimensions, what, what appears to be three dimensions, in this beautiful display. And so you can do this um, pretty much in real time. And I think that Apple and possibly Samsung are trying to get this technology into phones so you'll be able to, say, Skype people or FaceTime people and have something like a realistic 3D projected image. And so you can Skype your relations and you can do the um, Princess Leia, help me, Obi-Wan hologram thing, but to your friends. So um, this is actually um, today's technology. It's kind of expensive now, but it's the sort of thing you might be able to buy easily the next few years. So um, just going into the main part of the talk, I don't want this to be too much of a sort of a BuzzFeed article where I'm listing lots of things, but it might seem a bit like that because I'm going to talk about eight developments in LED technology. If you have a look at these LEDs, you've got a range of different colored LEDs here, and they're just stuck onto a, a sticky strip, and you can stick them anywhere. I'm not going to talk about gimmicky uses of LEDs, like this sort of thing here. So I don't really think that sticking LEDs everywhere is necessarily the biggest use of the technology. I'm going to talk about things which are a bit more esoteric. But of course, Putting LEDs every day, everywhere is also good fun at a party, so <laughs> absolutely you can do that. Um, for those of you who haven't seen an LED before, I'm sure there aren't that many of you, I'm going to pass one around. So this is, just, this is quite an old device. You can buy this for about three pounds. Um, it's a mechanical LED, so you wind it up using your hand, and you get some light out. Okay, so I'm just going to pass this around so you can have a look. Okay, we're going to start with development number one. So probably the most important development for LEDs is overhead lighting. So um, a few of you would have grown up with uh, incandescent lighting. So this is this um, tungsten bulb in your houses. And this has a really beautiful warm glow, and it's very cozy. But the problem with tungsten bulbs is that they're more of a heater than they are a lighter. They're quite inefficient. And so the drive is to have this sort of thing instead. Um, LEDs, which... Uh, are going to have brighter light, use a lot less energy, so cut down your fuel bills, and they're also going to um, be a lot less bad for the environment as well. Uh, what lighting companies do at the moment is they disguise these lights as lights you might be familiar with. So we've got a tungsten halogen bulb there, and we've got things which are pretending to be Edison incandescent bulbs. And so this is just to try to gently introduce the technology to people. I think most people are used to it, um, but... If you go into um, a lighting shop or into a supermarket and you want to buy LEDs, they still have the higher price tag. So people are less likely to pay, say, £8 for an LED bulb than they would be £4 for a compact fluorescent bulb, um, even though the LED will last for 60 years and cut down your fuel bills, people still are trying to make that jump with, with the initial cost. I hope, you'll <laughs> I hope by the end of this talk you'll not worry about the initial cost and just go for them. Um, I'm going to give a bit of an overview of how light has really developed as humankind has gone on. You start off with trying to light your house when it gets dark. You probably used an oil lamp, like this nice kind of... You can imagine a genie coming out of that lamp there. So these were pretty inefficient, but everyone had access to oil. And this, this was quite successful and still is. Um, I don't think this is a bad technology. Similarly with the candle, I think that they were invented thousands of years ago, but they're still brilliant light sources. They're not particularly efficient, but everyone can use them. And the poorest people can get access to candles and oil. So I think that this is still a pretty good technology. 
Um, getting further into the future, about three or 400 years ago, we started having much more efficient oil lamps. So we've got this example of an argand lamp, which burns the fuel much more efficiently, so it's much less sooty and smoky in people's houses. And also, these are relatively efficient. So if you look at the efficiency scale on here, we've got how many years ago going backwards, so we've got 10 years ago here, going back to 10,000. And we've got efficiency up here, and this is in lumens per watt. Now, um, a lumen is just uh, a unit of kind of irradiance that you get out of a light source. And so the higher the lumens per watt, then that, the, the greater the amount of light you're getting out for the power that you're putting in. So power is measured in watts on this particular graph. And at the moment, the argan lamp seems to be doing quite well. It's approaching one lumen per watt, but the oil lamp and the candle aren't doing that well. Um, Sort of um, a couple of hundred years ago, we started having f um, mainstream gas lighting in streets and all around the UK you'd find big gas cables connecting um, all of the lighting systems, public and private lighting systems. So things like this were very common. And in Cambridge, there is still a working gas light. I don't know why they keep it there. I think it's just for tourists, but it's really nice to see one still going in modern times. At the moment, we're at about five lumens per watt until we reach the electric age. We then get the Edison light bulb. So this is our tungsten incandescent light bulb. And this was incredible technology. And it's just, it's so revolutionary. I can't really describe how important this discovery was. Um, it was about over 100 years old, this technology, and it's still brilliant technology. I still really like incandescent bulbs, and I know a lot of people, it, they're, they're banned now, so you can't really buy them, but lots of people hoarded quite a lot when they were going <laughs> out, out of fashion, and lots of people have kept them, and it's because they have this beautiful warm glow. And we'll talk about why incandescent bulbs are so nice, why humans perceive them to be such lovely lights a bit later on. The important thing here is that we have a really big breakthrough in, oops, in efficiency. So we've now got a light which is breaking the 10 lumens per watt. Around the same time, well, a few years later, we started getting more interesting discoveries. So we've got fluorescent tubes and different versions of tungsten bulbs which are a bit more um, efficient. And we've got sodium high-pressure lamps, which these are the sorts of things that you find on the roadside. So these are street lamps, and they're pretty efficient as well. So we're now approaching... 100 lumens per watt. Um, there has been a big drive for efficiency in people's homes, and so the next thing that comes on the list is um, about uh, 25 years ago, we had the compact fluorescent bulb. So this is the stuff that you probably have in your house, and lots of people are not that keen on them. Does anyone have compact fluorescents in their house? Could you just raise your hand? Okay. How many people like them as a light source? So all the people who have them don't actually... Oh, a couple of people think they're all right. Okay. Does, can you just raise your hand if you have LEDs as a light source in your house? And how many of those people dislike them? Oh, a couple of people aren't keen on the LEDs. Okay. That's good. You can ask me questions later. <laughs> um, so these, these are really efficient lights, the compact fluorescents. The problem with them is that they contain mercury, and they're a little bit dim, and they... Um, their production cost is kind of misleading because they're heavily subsidised by um, the government. And so nobody really knows about whether they're actually saving you energy long-term because they don't last very long. 
Um, about 15 years ago, we started getting commercial LEDs on the market. They have a, an amazing efficiency. They have about 200 lumens per watt, and the efficiency is always increasing for the LEDs. Um, the reason why they're so efficient is because they have a fundamentally different way of creating the light. So with these sorts of things, with the incandescent bulbs, you're passing electricity through the bulb, and the filament is getting really hot, and it's the heat that's kind of creating the light, or more that the, the light is a byproduct of all of that heat that's being created. With the compact fluorescent bulb, you've got um, mercury gas, which is being ionized, and then it releases UV light, um, and that's where you generate your bright white light from. But in the LED, it's actually a crystal which, when you pass electricity through it, it emits uh, this beautiful very, very bright light. And so it's a completely different, much more efficient mechanism of generating light from electricity. And that's why the LED is so good. Um, I just want to quickly mention that the theoretical limit for all light sources um, is 567 lumens per watt. That means for every single electron that you put into your bulb, you're going to get it entirely converted into a light wave. So that's 100% efficiency. We're actually very close to the theoretical limit, so I don't know how much better LEDs are going to get, but uh, LED companies are always pushing to get a bit further on. Okay, the reason why this is so topical is because in 2014, we got a Nobel Prize. Um, these are some uh, brilliant Japanese scientists. Um, we've got Isamu Akasaki, Hiro Amano, and Shuji Nakamura, and I'm really lucky that I'm able to work with uh, these two chaps, and they are really nice and uh, really brilliant researchers. And if you have a look at what they won the Nobel Prize for, we've got for the invention of blue light, blue light-emitting diodes, which enable energy-saving white light sources. So we'll talk a little bit later about how we're converting this blue light from the LED into white light for your house. Um, this is such um, an important breakthrough because um, as you can probably see from the image of the Earth in the background, this is what the Earth looks like at night. Um, about 20% of all of the electricity generated on Earth from power stations or solar or whatever is being used for lighting. So that's a huge amount of energy is being used only for lighting our homes in the evenings and streets as well. So if we could reduce that 20% val that value down to, say, 5%, this would be an incredible thing for stopping carbon emissions, closing down power stations, um, stopping the use of fossil fuels, or a little bit more. And so this is a really fundamental goal that we should all be trying to reach with LEDs. Okay, so if we have a look at what's inside our LED. So this LED is a kind of emulating a tungsten halogen bulb, so it's kind of like the spotlights you have in your kitchen or your bathroom. If you look inside the LED, uh, the light, you can see that there are a whole bunch of LEDs in there. So each one of these yellow chips is, in fact, an LED device. If you zoom in on them and you put a couple of electrodes onto the two contact pads of each individual LED, you'll get this beautiful blue light come out. So this has been filtered a bit, so it's not so intense, but this is really, really intense light, so you get an awful lot of brightness out of a little bit of light. Um, all of your household lights, they look white, but in actual fact, the light that's coming out of them is blue. And I'm going to explain to you how it ends up being white. Um, if you look at all of these um, chips, they're about a millimeter across. You have a huge amount of light coming from a very, very tiny area. And this is why some LED designs have got lots of them packed together. They use such little energy that you can have loads of them together in a strip or 
making whatever kind of shape you want, so you can have whatever kind of illumination you wish. I'm going to talk a little bit about what this amazing crystal is that happens to emit blue light when you pass a current through it. It's made of um, gallium nitride. So gallium nitride is just a mixture between gallium metal and nitrogen, and you get this very hard, transparent crystal. And when you connect it up to two electrodes and pass a current through it, you get very, very strong blue light coming out of it. Um, the good thing about gallium nitride is that um, it's, it's part of a multi-billion dollar LED industry, but it's still mysterious enough a material that I can get money to research it. So that's very nice. Um, we also do research on aluminium nitride and indium nitride. So this family here in group three of the periodic table are the three main um, uh, metal elements that we add to this material to form it into a crystal. They all combine with nitrogen to make um, a hard, transparent, light-emitting crystal. In fact, with aluminium nitride, you get UV light out. With gallium nitride, you get blue light. And with indium nitride, you can get yellow and red. So you can combine all of these into an alloy to emit whatever light you want. I'm going to use this opportunity to mention my research group. So uh, we work in the Cambridge Centre of Gallium Nitride. This, this is the Department of Materials um, in uh, Cambridge. And people think that it's quite strange that quite a lot of people get employed just working on one material. Um, this is because it's, it's still pretty much unknown how this material is really good at converting electrons into light. It converts um, electricity into light energy really, really efficiently. And it's very difficult to understand what crystalline properties it has that's making, it, making that happen. And so um, I'm actually funded by the government. I've got an, uh, the Engineering and Physical Research Councils, which is part of, um, it's, it's a government agency which funds lots of scientists working in physical science. I'm lucky enough to be funded by the taxpayer, and that's because um, the government thinks that energy-saving methods of lighting and, um, and power transfer and, and elect saving electricity is quite a good thing to be spending money on. Um, this is my research group. So there are a lot of us who are um, able to work here. So we've got lots of really... Um, enthusiastic students and researchers who are all studying this material and its alloys. We're trying to find new uses for them, um, improve the current uses, and to also learn a bit more about the material. Okay. Um, this, is, this is my favorite use, actually, I think, for LEDs. Um, this is a developmental project that my group's been working on for quite a while, and it's trying, trying to replace kerosene lighting um, so um, in lots of developing countries, kerosene lamps are um, a necessary but not very safe way of lighting. I've got some statistics about kerosene lamps. So um, they're not particularly bright. Um, the, the, main, um, the main cause of child poisoning is from kerosene ingestion. It causes a lot of structural fires, of course. And 10% of child injury mortalities from kerosene burns. So it's a really... It's a really important issue to try to get modern, very cheap lighting, um, which is accessible to the very poor. Lots of people who live in um, conditions where they're going to be using kerosene are in an off-grid situation. So they don't have access to electricity all the time, or they have perhaps intermittent access. So to make things cheap and accessible and easy to store and easy to use is really important. Um, we've We've been teaming up with um, a couple of developmental organizations, Solar Aid, 
and smart villages. So smart villages, is um, they provide lots of different power solutions for off-grid communities. And if you do go to their websites, you, you can see lots of information about the brilliant work that they do. And what we're trying to do is um, make photovoltaic LEDs. So these are taking a um, solar cell and connecting it up to an LED, putting it into the light during the day. Lots of these countries are not short on sunlight during the day. And then letting it charge up with the solar cell. And then the light is uh, bright, and it emits for four hours in the evening when the sun's gone down. And this is pretty much a free way of getting um, enough light so that you can do schoolwork, or if you, you can do sewing, if you're if your income depends on piecework and that sort of thing. So it's really, really important. Um, also, it's, uh, there's, there are lots of financial s solutions where you can kind of offset the cost of your kerosene to get off the kerosene slowly and slowly pay for um, this photovoltaic-type lighting. Um, there are also USB connectors on these so that you can charge up your phone as well. So communication automatically gets added into um, having this light in your house. So I think this is a, a really nice example of how LED technology is going to be, become more important in the developing world. Okay, this is something that's also dear to our hearts, healthy living. So in the Western world, we, we worry about whether we're living healthily, whether we're getting enough sleep or um, those sorts of things. Um, does artificial light affect our health? So lots of people anecdotally have said that they're not keen on strip lighting, fluorescent tubes at work. Does anyone have headaches or not feel very happy when they're under fluorescent tubes? Is that just because you don't like going to work? I don't know. Um, so a few people have said that they, they feel like they're, that they're not keen on working under a fluorescent tube. It might be to do with the type of light that's coming out. Um, this is my son. He's, he's three years old, and he has a total screen ban. So no phones, no access to tablets, no television. And the idea was that I didn't really want him to be <laughs> exposed to artificial light because I wanted him to sleep better, but he never sleeps. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know if this is a, really the way to do this. If we think about the different ways that lighting might affect us, let's have a look. Um, lots of people have probably told you recently that you shouldn't be looking at a phone or a tablet or, or an LCD screen before going to bed. It messes up your sleep. Has anyone heard that in the news at all? Okay, so pro probably lots of people are starting to... Uh, take notice of that, and I've decided to read a book or uh, read that non-backlit Kindle or something before they go to sleep. Those things are really important because, um, because of these things here. So we've got side lighting from LEDs here. Um, the companies who are making these um, LCD backlights, they're going to use the cheapest possible LEDs because they want to have very bright, very efficient ones. They don't care about the color. It just needs to be any shade of white. The cheapest shade of white is bluish white. That's the key. That's really bad for our health. I'm going to explain. Um, this is a section through the eye. So if you have a look here, there's a, there's a picture of the eye there, and we've just sectioned through some of the cells. Um, if you look at these green long cells, these are the rods. So these are what are responsible for detecting um, different levels of light. And these blue sort of blobby-looking ones are the cones. So these are going to be um, the way you perceive color. Um, only recently, these ones further down here were noticed. Um, these actually detect light of, at 460 nanometers, which is blue color. And nobody knew that the eye had receptors for blue light. No one really knew what, the, what these receptors did. 
Uh, until recently, they realized that it's blue light that controls our circadian rhythm. So as humans, we've all evolved to, um, to really appreciate the sun. The sun was the only source of light we ever had during our development. And so for us, that's our favorite light. Um, the sun is tinged blue in the morning, and it goes through yellow, and then as it sets, it has a red tinge. And so ideally, what we want is to have a lot of exposure to blue light in the morning, and then no blue light exposure after that. And this is kind of the opposite of what happens in the Western world. You're under blue-tinted strip lights. You look at um, iP iPads and tablets and phones in the evening. So this is all kind of the opposite of what our bodies are supposed to be doing. Um, and there has been lots of... I, I haven't put citations for any of these up here, but if you do want to... Um, get access to any of the papers which talk about these things, then please do email me. My, I'll put my email at the end. Um, there are a lot of scientific papers which have been talking about serious health risks from people being exposed to um, uh, situations where they'll upset their circadian rhythm. So the um, instances of cancer for night workers are much higher. Also, people who sort of lie on the sunny side of a hospital ward seem to get better faster. So there, there, there are lots of... Not very, large, not very large groups, but st uh, studies which have suggested um, that there may be a serious health risk to having your circadian rhythm upset. How, so how are we going to get rid of this? The best thing to do would be to have a whole load of LEDs and for them to change color during the day. Now, this isn't going to be that good because nobody wants to watch a red-tinted screen before they go to sleep. You've got to be able to do this in a way that is not going to be perceptible to you and so it's not going to ruin your entertainment experience in the evening, but that it's going to still have an effect that it's going to um, not stimulate all of these blue receptors in your eye, and it will help you to go to sleep. So which ways can we use for making light? I think you all know that white light from the sun is just made up of equal amounts of all the different colors of the spectrum. So you're going from infrared to red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, and then ultraviolet, and then gamma rays, but they don't really turn up on Earth. So we've got a whole range of different wavelengths we can choose from with visible light. The cheapest way to make the LED is to take a blue LED, which is kind of... The, these are the most efficient kinds of LEDs. The reason why they're used a lot is because they're 90% efficient. So you can con convert 90% of your electricity into light if you use a blue LED. Um, they put on top of it a yellow phosphor. So a phosphor is just a powder which absorbs blue light and it's going to re-emit it in another colour. They choose the yellow phosphor because it gives this kind of bluish-white light. I'm going to pass around something else now. I don't know where my LED's gone. It's, <laughs> okay. it's, it's still around. Um, I'm going to pass around um, a Philips light bulb. So this is um, a new LED light bulb. Um, I think this, this cost me £8 from John Lewis. So <laughs> please don't run away with it. Um, Okay, and uh, I bought two of them, and I sawed the top off one of them, and uh, you can reveal the LEDs inside, and there's a little plastic cap which has got the phosphor embedded in it, so I'm going to pass that around as well, and you can see how they've made this light bulb. So this is a warm LED light bulb, so it's supposed to give you this beautiful uh, tungsten-style glow. And they do that by putting very expensive phosphors in which are able to uh, make the light less... <laughs> yes, it's heavy, isn't it? Um, a lot of the weight is the electronic ballast, which is their 
um, and there's a heat sink to um, get rid of all the heat as well, so that the, the bulb, when you switch it on, should be cold to the touch. Um, the expensive way of doing it is by taking a red, a blue, and a green LED and getting, of course, your perfect white light. That's going to be the healthiest light you can have because then, of course, you've got a big representation of all the colors in the spectrum. Okay. How do we even know what the light is split up into? You can take white light and you can find out what it's made of. You can see which colors are represented in the white. You'll find that there are lots of different kinds of white. So you can have a bluish white, a reddish white. Um, this is a cheap uh, compact fluorescent, so it's got a kind of bluish color. Um, this is my very expensive experiment. I've got um, my light source, a card with a slit cut into it, and a prism. And what you can do is switch on the light source, and you can disperse the light through the slit, and you can see all of the respective colors that this light is made out of um, in a prism. If you want to have information on how to make your own spectroscope. You can kind of see how I've done it here. It's not very high-tech. But please um, <laughs> email me if you want to make your own one. I've got lots of um, ways of making much more accurate ones than this as well. Uh, okay, so what we've got here is our, our nice um, CFL bulb. And you can see there's lots of blue represented here. There's a big strip of green, and then there's quite a dim red. If we have a look at um, a bulb which represents the sun a bit better, and that's going back to our nice incandescent bulb. This is why, even though it's terrible for the environment, it's my favorite bulb. <laughs> that's because you can see that it's got perfect representation of the entire spectrum. So all of the visible colors are represented there. And that's why the light looks so nice, because this really emulates the sun a lot. So let's have a look at what these different types of light do to the way that we see things. So we've got some balls of wool here, and they're just illuminated by sunlight. You can look at the sunlight spectrum here. You can see the intensity of all the colors is pretty good. It peaks in the kind of yellowish green, and we've got infrared over here and ultraviolet over here. You can see all of the colors are represented quite well, and all of our wool looks quite nice. If you have a natural white LED, so this is an LED which has been um, tailored to um, represent all of the colors in the spectrum. So you've got something which is trying to mimic um, the sunlight by using three different kinds of phosphors here. So you've got a bluish, a greenish, and a reddish uh, emitting phosphor. You have a big peak um, in the violet, and that's the original color of the LED coming through. And then you've got these colors superimposed from the phosphor. You can see that the representation of the wool is not too bad. I think maybe this orange isn't as bright, this yellow, they're not as good. But I think apart from that, it's not too bad. This is a cheap LED. Just by looking at the spectrum, you can see a big blue spike. And you can see it's pretty rubbish with the way that the phosphor is converting that blue light into visible light. So it's going to always be a bit blue-tinged. And, and these balls of wool look pretty terrible to me. I think they all just look kind of bluish. Do you all agree with me? Yeah? OK, good. <laughs> it's not the projector. <laughs> OK, this is a fluorescent light. So this is a compact fluorescent bulb, or it could be a fluorescent tube. So what you see now is you see three very sharp spikes at very, very specific wavelengths, very specific color intensities. And you don't really see anything else. And that means that the way that the colors are represented is going to be a little bit off. So if you look at the red side, all of the reds look kind of brown now instead of orange, red, and yellow. They all kind of look a sort of 
the same sort of shade of brown. Um, you might not think that that's a particularly bad thing and that this, this light is okay, but being able to perceive the color red is really important in humans, um, especially if you're in the hospital. Um, being able to differentiate between uh, arteries and veins is kind of important when you're a surgeon. So in the early days of LED lights, lots and lots of hospitals really wanted LED lights because they thought that they would be much more energy saving. But the problem with the older LED lights is that they didn't really have the phosphors tuned properly. And so they didn't represent the colors very well. And there was a lot of blue in there. And that meant if you had an artery and a vein next to each other, they both just looked brown. Um, so this was this was kind of dangerous. So they, <laughs> the surgeons maintained incandescent lighting for as long as possible because the color rendering was so much better. Now we've tried to de design medical lights with LEDs which have got as perfect color rendering as possible. And by as perfect color rendering, the aim is to always have it um, render colors in the same way that the sun does. Um, I wasn't allowed to show arteries or veins or anything, or body parts, so um, I've got strawberries here instead. So <laughs> I've got a picture of some strawberries, and um, I, I put a filter over the image which simulates uh, a color rendering index of 75. A color rendering index of 100 is what you'd get from the sun. Um, you can see from the fluorescent strip light, everything looks kind of brown. Um, the warm white LED it's much better, so you can see that the red is represented really well. Um, lots of uh, butchers' shops and meat counters in supermarkets deliberately avoid using fluorescent lighting because they don't want any of the meat to look brown or anything that they're selling that's supposed to be red to look brown. Apparently, it doesn't look good. So um, that's kind of my <laughs> version of uh, arteries and veins there. You can see how important it is for color rendering just for selling food, things like that. Um, okay, so this is number four. This is a slightly newer thing. Um, I think that you're all familiar with communication using light. I'm going to talk about how LEDs uh, are helping us to communicate. So this is very um, old-style communication. We've got a lighthouse. We've got Pippin lighting the uh, <laughs> beacon at Gondor in the Lord of the Rings. And this chap here is a naval officer in the United States, and he's got a Morse lamp here. So lots of people are quite familiar with the concept of communicating using light but we're going to talk about um, modern communication using light. You've heard about Wi-Fi, where you're using microwaves to send uh, data through the air, but we can also use Li-Fi, where you're just using light to send data through the air. This was first developed on aeroplanes, so we've got here an aeroplane which <laughs> has got lots of... Um, the graphics department went mad here with the streams of light coming through. Um, what, what the problem was with using Wi-Fi on a plane is that there are lots of microwave electronics in a cockpit which could be interfered with if you used Wi-Fi to get the um, passengers' um, televisions to communicate with the entertainment system and that sort of thing. And so Wi-Fi was uh, really useful. Li-Fi was really useful because the plane's overhead lights, if they can be LEDs, you can switch them on and off at a faster rate than the human eye can see, and you can use them to send data. Because if you switch it off, that's kind of like a binary zero or if you have a low intensity, it's equivalent to binary zero. And then if you have a high intensity of light, or if you switch it on, that's your binary one. And all of this happens faster than your eye can notice, and so you can start transmitting data. So this leads us into lots of interesting possibilities. You can start setting up the Internet of Things, so you can have your LED lights in your room communicating with your telephone, it can communicate with your fridge, so you can get a pop-up on your phone saying your milk's going off, or 
maybe <laughs> I should choose an example that's a bit more exciting. <laughs> um, you could also have um, devices going on and off in your house while you're not there. You can program them with your phone just using Li-Fi. If you have Li-Fi in your, if you have LEDs set up in your house, so um, lots of people think that this technology is kind of frivolous and that it will be difficult to find uses for this. But I think the younger generation of people who are used to just having technology in their hands think that this is an absolutely normal way that the world is going to go. And people my age or perhaps older think this is kind of terrifying. I don't know. <laughs> Do any of you people think that the Internet of Things is going to be something that will be revolutionary or game-changing for your life? Can you put your hand up if you think it's going to be a big difference. Okay, so quite a few people would adopt this technology quite easily. That's, that's nice to hear. Um, ah, yes, before I go on to this one, I'm going to go back here. I need a volunteer for the audience. I'm going to do a little bit of a demonstration, but because it's very difficult for you to see up here, I'm going to leave this kit out so you can come and have a wander and have a look. Um, does anybody fancy... Uh... Oh, brilliant. Yes, yes, you come up. Good. <laughs> Right, I've got the mic here, so I can... Uh... Hello, what's your name? Danica. Okay. How old are you? Eleven. Sorry? Eleven. Okay, that's good. <laughs> right, what I've got here is... Um, I've got... I'm, I'm going to... Because the people can't see, I'm going to um, get you to say yes or no to describe <laughs> whether I'm telling the truth or not. What I've got here is um, an electronic circuit. I've got a power supply here, which is uh, connected to um, a little tiny LED light. And the circuit is broken. And on the other side of the LED light, there is a light detector. So this light detector, when light shines on it, it converts the light into an electrical signal. OK. And on one side, I'm going to put some data in. I'm going to put in uh, a song on my phone. And on the other side, I've got a data output, which is just a speaker. So my data going in is music. My data coming out is um, audible music from the speaker. And the circuit is broken by an LED and a light detector. Right. Um, what else do I need to say about this? Let's switch it on and <laughs> see what happens. So I'm just switching on the speaker. And I'm going to set up my phone to play Mozart. OK, and let's switch the LED on. Oh, this is when it doesn't work. I don't know if you can hear this. Can anybody hear that? Okay, <laughs> sorry, come here, please. I've forgotten your name. Danica. Danica, okay. Can you see where the break in the circuit is? Yeah, and you see that the LED light is on? If you, do you believe me that the data is going from the phone into the LED, which is being modulated by a circuit? is being converted into zeros and ones by the LED flashing on and off, faster than you can see. And then it's passing across this gap in the circuit, okay? I'm gonna get you to test that by putting your hand in front of the LED so it stops the connection between the light falling onto the photo detector and the light. Okay. 
Can you hear the music stopped? Uh, do you want to do it again? Leave it there for... Oops. Okay, so it's stopped. So you can see that you actually are getting binary data from the phone to travel through this very cheap LED as zeros and ones just by changing the intensity of the light. It's all happening so fast that Danica cannot see the light. I'm going to leave this um, on later on so you can come and have a look at it and test it yourself. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> You're a very good member of the audience to volunteer. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, um, this is the next thing, fiber optic communication. I think lots of you have got fiber optic broadband probably. Okay, this is being caused by LEDs going and uh, firing light through <laughs> fiber optic cables. This is a very fat fiber optic cable. This is just a massive piece of perspex. So <laughs> it demonstrates that you can get total internal reflection of light going for hundreds and hundreds of meters, miles even, without really any significant loss. And the reason why this is a lot better than electrical signals is because you don't get any crosstalk between the signals as they travel down the fiber. And also the losses are a lot less. And it's a very ch cheap way of um, transporting data. So you will have bundles of optical fibers in your fast broadband system. Um, the last mile that gets to your house, though, is probably still copper cable. You're probably still getting ultra-fast broadband with fiber optics up to a distributor, and then the rest of the infrastructure is probably still copper. Um, I think in the USA and, U and Japan, they can do the whole lot with fiber optic broadband. Um, but I guess in the UK, we're, we're coming up to that. So this is something which people really take for granted, the fact that they um, are getting um, access to the internet just from huge bundles of LEDs which are tr transporting data optically. Um, this is a really nice thing that we're trying to do. This is extremely difficult as well, using LEDs for water purification. So the important thing that we've got here is water purification. All the bugs that are in water are going to be bacteria or viruses. So what you want to do is, if you have a bacterium, you want to uh, destroy its DNA or disrupt its... Um, cell structure, and for a virus, you want to destroy its RNA, and these require really hard um, UV light, so the kind of UV light which is really dangerous for humans, and obviously it's going to disrupt our DNA, that's why it's dangerous for humans. Um, what we've got at the moment is not a good solution. We've got these mercury-based lights. Um, they're really heavy and bulky, they're glass bulbs, so they smash easily, and they're just generally difficult to use in the developing world. Have any, has anyone seen any of these sterilizing pens before? Okay. Um, they get used by campers in the Western world quite a lot because they're the only people who can really afford them. And they're the sort of people who might use them rarely enough that they won't get damaged. You don't really find any of these in regions where you have dirty water and you routinely have to drink it. You think that it might be an elegant solution, but it's just not a workable solution. The, uh, the best idea would be to have um, a whole lot of UV-emitting LEDs and lining them on the inside of water pipes and having the water travel through those pipes directly to a village or to a big water system, because in that case, the very harmful UV light would be kept away from people and that nobody would be able to see the interior of um, a water transport um, pipe. And so... It's, it would be a really safe solution. The difficult thing is getting to that stage, and that's because it's really difficult to make UV LEDs. I'm going to quickly go through these slides because um, 
<laughs> this slide is slightly complicated. I mentioned we've got gallium nitride, which is, it emits just about in the UV. The color of light that you get out from the LED is kind of bluish violet color. And you also have aluminum nitride, which emits well into the ultraviolet. So we've got here color of light out, and we've got infrared, the visible spectrum, and the ultraviolet. And then we've got the atom spacing in our crystal. Um, we've got indium nitride way down over here, which emits in the infrared. Um, if you make alloys of these materials, you can start tailoring and getting whatever kind of light you like. So if you look here at this alloy between indium and gallium nitride, you can go through the whole visible spectrum from the IR to the UV. So this is a really brilliant alloy system to work with because you can have whatever color you like. Um, the difficult thing is um, trying to get into the UV, and that's because aluminium nitride is a very difficult material to work with. It's really hard, it's really brittle, and it's very difficult to um, make into a device. And it has lots and lots of crystalline defects which kind of absorb all of the e electricity and don't turn it into light. So making a UV LED is very tough, um, but we've got a project which is trying to make one so that we can start making sterilization um, LEDs specifically for putting into pipes in the developing world. Um, the kind of wavelength we're talking about is this UVC area. So this is really, really dangerous short wave ultraviolet light. So this is also a difficult issue because if people got their hands on a UV LED, it would be really um, not very safe at all. The current status is not looking amazing. We've got um, 380 nanometers. That's kind of that's UVA still um, on the border between UVA and UVB. So it's stuff which is damaging to you, but not so bad. Um, the intensity of the light that you get out um, drops off quite a lot as you go further and further into the ultraviolet. And so the when you get closer to the region where you want to kill bacteria, which is about 280 nanometers, you don't really have an alternative apart from this mercury line here, which is um, what's currently on the market. So um, watch this space for developments in UV LEDs because they really are going to um, make a really big difference in killing bacteria and water and making people more healthy in the developing world. Okay, this is a... Coming up towards the end now, micro-LEDs. So you can make LEDs in any kind of um, size that you like. So you can, I think the typical ones are about millimeter across. You can get ones which are really, really tiny. The smallest one that I've heard of is 10 microns. So a micron is a thousandth of a millimeter. So 10 of those. Um, why would we want to use micro-sized LEDs? It's so that you can make them into um, arrays and you can start doing quite interesting things with them. Um, the most common use for micro-LED arrays is for um, 3D printing, lithography, just standard printing. Um, the print heads can be aligned using micro-LEDs instead of normal alignment procedures, so you can have uh, much more easy to reproduce, reliable printing, which brings costs down. But um, the more, more exciting is in the medical world, where you can you can stimulate um, different circuits, electrical circuits in the brain optically by having these individually addressable um, lines of tiny, tiny LEDs. So you shine an LED on a particular neuron in the brain and you can start mapping out what kind of circuits you're getting. And the way that you can use that data to learn about how the brain works is just, you know, it really blows my mind. So <laughs> the people who are doing this kind of work are 
very impressive. Firstly, because they can make, make these tiny needles. This is, this is one millimeter between the LEDs here. So these are really small needles, which I think they've only actually put them into rats' brains yet, but they can map out um, large electrical circuits going on in them. So this is going to be really important in fighting lots of brain diseases because people will be able to find out exactly which parts of the brain have stopped working and hopefully be able to get them restarted again. Um, this is when you have, so this was just a one-dimensional line of LEDs. We've now started to get um, a 2D array. So we've got a 64 um, by 64 um, pixel addressable LED array. So you can see all of the contacts fanning out here. And this is a very tiny, tiny little screen, if you like. You've now got 64 by 64. And I think that they're working on uh, larger numbers of pixels. The aim is to get a 256 pixel, tiny, tiny array. And these are the sorts of things that they use in projectors. Um, this, is, <laughs> this is a similar kind of thing. This is a 9 million individually addressable LEDs. So this is the largest HDTV in the world. Um, in the United States, of course, they have uh, <laughs> 16,000 square foot HDTV. And I think this was made by Toshiba, and it's, I guess, to demonstrate that they can individually address um, a 3D micropixel um, LED display and have, have a high-definition television, which can be that large. Um, this is an amazing development. It's taking rigid electronic parts and sticking them onto flexible things. So um, transfer printing of LEDs is quite a new thing. This is where you can grow the LEDs on a surface, um, etch, back, etch back the substrate that you've grown them on, and pop all the LEDs out and individually contact them onto a piece of plastic or clothes or anything like that. This is going to be really important for people who are working in... Um, the medical environment or in high radiation environment where they've got sensors, uh, optical sensors on their clothes or sewn into their clothes or um, maybe if they have wearable, flexible plastic um, safety goggles or devices on. This is all really important for that. So this is a brilliant piece of technology which is really, really difficult to do. Um, as you can see here, lots of very tiny LEDs. These are 150 microns across and they've got individual contacts here. They've done bending and stretching tests where they've bent and flexed materials with LEDs stuck to them um, a thousand times to see how the light dissipates um, as you keep bending. And the failure point is always these contacts here. So finding better ways of, etching the, of um, depositing the contacts on would be really good. But the LEDs themselves don't suffer. They're pretty indestructible. Okay. Um, this... Uh, I didn't really want to mention this. This is kind of the most futuristic thing I'm, I'm going to talk about. I don't really think this is very nice, but lots of people think this is brilliant. So um, Google are trying to make um, smart contact lenses. They started off, I don't know if you might have heard about um, smart contact lenses, which have got a tiny sensor in which can detect insulin in diabetic people's tears. And so they're able to monitor really, really carefully their insulin levels just by wearing um, contact lenses. Um, they've now decided that they want to have augmented reality through contact lenses. So if you wear lenses, you can... Uh, it might be... The example they've given is people who are working in, on the roadside, um, construction workers, where signs and symbols and posts kind of come out with much higher resolution and intensity using this augmented reality. I personally think it's probably going to be used for advertising. And you're walking past Wagamama's and it says, just 
this, this ad will go away <laughs> if you come and eat some sushi or something in your, will just turn up in your peripheral vision. The way that this works is you've got a, this is a, I think this is a 16 by 16, this is a 16 pixel array, so I don't think it's going to be a <laughs> very good display. This is projected directly onto your retina, so you don't actually need to focus anything, and it's just going to turn up. So you can be looking at whatever the content is on your phone, and it can just be on your eye while you're doing other things normally. I personally don't know if there's any really any good use for that, but I think probably people younger than me will think it's excellent. Um, this, this is a prototype, so it looks horrible. You can see the contacts are really thick, and you can see that the size of the display is really enormous. Um, they're working on making something which is going to be much less intrusive to your eye. And I think that this is... Um, the, the number of pixels is um, doubling every few months, so I think that these sorts of things are going to very quickly go up to 256-pixel micro-LED displays in your eye. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing to end on or not. <laughs> We've looked at um, LEDs um, being changed from blue to white light. Nice uh, photovoltaic LEDs, so you can have a solar-powered LED. Um, why it's really important to have a good color of light, and it's not, not only just for you to feel better, but also there, there are real health repercussions for not having healthy light. Um, different ways of communicating with light. Using light to clean water, this would be a wonderful thing if we can get this going. It's, it's a very difficult technological challenge because of the material system. And then also um, having addressable LEDs in microscopic size arrays, they'll be useful for improving our entertainment, I think I'll call it that. But also, they'll, they're absolutely invaluable in medical research, especially looking at brain cancer. Um, if, you are, if you are interested in what my research group is doing, um, you can go to our website. We've also got a YouTube channel. Um, if you just put, um, if you put gallium nitride into the YouTube um, search, you'll probably find it. Um, we also have a Pinterest site. Um, we're trying to collect together um, um, mini projects which are going to be downloadable, printables um, for school projects or even home projects, and also things that you can make at home. Like I mentioned, um, you could make a homemade uh, spectrometer or small circuits like the one that I'm describing here, um, which you're all welcome to have a look at. Um, do email me if uh, you are trying to find a research paper which you can't get access to because I might have access to the unformatted open access version of that, which might be useful. Okay, so thank you very much. Um, I guess we're going to have a Q&A. We've got five minutes, and so um, if there are any questions, then yes, please do shout out. Thank you. Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask you if there's any knowledge yet about the safety of Li-Fi, given that we, we're now concerned about you know, electric, electromagnetic fields from Wi-Fi in our homes. What do we know about, know about the light? Um, so the electromagnetic field from light is, um, it doesn't really interfere with the body in the same way that microwaves or um, short-range radio waves interfere with with our bodies, and um, that's just because the wavelength of the light is much smaller than the wavelength of the radio waves. So um, the, there have been a lot of studies on what the effects of blue light might be, um, but um, none of them have been very serious, not in the same way that 
UV light is absolutely known to be dangerous in uh, saying that, despite how dangerous UV light is, we do seem to use it quite, quite a lot for a lot of industrial processes. And also, lots of, I don't know if you know this, lots of ladies who wear fake acrylic nails, they cure the nails under UV light, which, or, they, or they even go under UV lamps for tanning and that sort of thing, which I think is really crazy that that's allowed. Um, the, the blue light that you might get from an LED doesn't really have those kinds of health issues. But also the most important thing is that the, it, the electromagnetic spectrum of light is something that we've evolved with. So it's not going to be something that interferes in the same way that very high intensity microwaves do, which are absolutely a new technological development and not something that, that we're used to from the sun, for example. Hi, thank you. Um, I hope you might touch on Li-Fi. Um, could you comment on what the bandwidth of Li-Fi might be compared to Wi-Fi and any limitations it might potentially have, like if you wanted to watch a video but the light was off? Yeah, I'm just trying to remember. I think it's... Um, uh, I think the peak bandwidth is... Uh, 500 gigahertz, something like that. It's, it's unbelievable. It's enormous. I think that the... Um, and the transport speed um, is a, a, about 100 um, gigabits per, uh, per kilometer... Sorry, gigabit kilometers per second. So it's... These are really astronomical values. Um, it, it can only really be implemented if you've got LEDs in your lights and you've got modulators that are able to deal with deal with Li-Fi. So you have to have a whole integrated system in your house. You can't just retrofit your bayonet cap um, system in your everyday house to be able to do this. So you have to kind of... You've got to be the sort of person who's going to overhaul all the electronics in your house. But um, certainly they're doing, they're doing this quite a lot in a lot of companies. They're kitting out all of the buildings with Li-Fi just because it's an easy way for um, workers to communicate on their phones or with each other without having to go into meetings and that sort of thing. So a few companies are doing it. Um, I'm really struggling with bulbs. Um, I'm an illustrator, and at the moment it's fine because it's the summer, so I have more summer natural light. But I keep buying the wrong bulbs, and my husband keeps, because he's Danish, keeps doing the efficient new ones, and um, I'm really <laughs> struggling getting the wrong lighting. I don't know. This might be a bad thing to say, but do you know anyone who's hoarded any incandescent bulbs? <laughs> that might be the way forward. I know. I like the old lighting. Have you had a look at this Philips bulb that's been going around? No, I haven't. This has got very good colour rendering. Yeah. They are on the expensive side of the LEDs. What you it's want to worth it, because I'm doing 10 hours a day, so I, I'm really going yeah. crazy with the bulbs. I, I think it's worth it. Um, you can even build a spectrometer to check and then take it back to the shop if you don't like the spectrum, because... Um, uh, the ones which are marketed as a warm white or natural light or natural white or anything which sounds kind of uh, fluffy, that generally that, those are the ones which have been designed to simulate the sun as much as possible. So probably go for ones which have got names like natural or healthy or warm or something like this. Hello. I'm right at the back. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> uh, should I replace my lights now... Or, but if I then get lights that are going to last the next 60 years and you improve them so much <laughs> in the next five or ten years, 
I've wasted my money. I might as well wait oh. and go with the ones I've got before I, I then... Know. This is a good point, actually. The driver electronics in LEDs, they die faster than the LED does. So um, if you buy, say, an LED, a very cheap LED from China and you think this is an amazing bargain, it's probably because the electronics in the heatsink and the driver are not very well made, and those might die early. And then I think in the, in the days when LEDs were starting to become really mainstream, there were a, a whole load of LEDs coming on the market which were very cheap, and lots of people said that they broke early and they didn't get there 15 years or whatever. And that's, I think it's just because the driver electronics were poorly put together. So I think you want to go for a middle ground where you have a relatively expensive one. So companies like Osram and LumiLeds and Philips, they all make high-quality ones where you know that the electronics is going to be good. That's probably a way to start. But they're getting cheaper all the time. Maybe it is worth waiting. I'm not sure. Um, when one of your bulbs dies, just buy an LED, and maybe the cost will be absorbed into your life cost. You won't notice. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, there was a little. There was a question at the front, wasn't there? Would you like? Um, with wet matter in the generation, yes, it's become more and more important. Can you suggest which might be the best? Um, so the question was about uh, macular degeneration, so eye conditions where the intensity of the light is lower and lower that you perceive. How can you get the, be how can you get the best benefit? I think that the answer is probably to, to have a very high-intensity light but have it mounted... Um, probably you don't want it mounted in, in a room. You want to have a light that you're taking around with you, don't you? Yes. Um, the highest LED, um, the highest intensity LED lights which are on the market are made for bike lights. I don't know if this is going to be useful to you, but they, the, the, the kind of white that they give out is, again, a bluish white, because their aim is to make the person visible, and they're not meant to have a nice experience for a car driver, for example. So these... Um, these lights are very, very intense, and, they are, and they're small, and they're handheld, and so it's kind of like just holding a torch, really. Perhaps that's the sort of thing that you might need, because it's very directed, very intense. Um, the light has gone red, so I think I absolutely can't have any more questions now. I think the next speaker is coming, but thank you very much. Oh, thank you. <laughs>